This is the Silver City Church Podcast. Our prayer is you are edified by this content and that it refines your life in Christ. Visit us at silvercityky.com. From there, you can connect with us on social media, view our location and service time, and download our mobile app to stay all the more connected with us. If this content has been beneficial to you, please share it and give this show a high rating so more may hear the gospel of Christ. May you see God's will be done and kingdom come in your life. We are through verse 7 of chapter 1, and we are going to be continuing on this morning. So as we go through this morning, this morning's text is a little intense. I'm not going to lie to you. It's a little intense. So I want to give you a piece of advice as we move forward in our self-test. Let me ask a question first. How many of you have ever stayed up late into the night, burning the midnight oil, cramming for a test? Boys, you've never done that before? I, yeah, right. Uh, I, I've done that multiple times in high school. But it rarely ever works out well, does it? It rarely ever works out well. Why is that? We have this whole concept of cramming, like I've got to just stay up, stay up, stay up. More information, right? But it ends up being like overwatering a plant. It never works out because you're tired when you go to take the test. And when you're tired, you become emotional. And when you become emotional, it's very rare that you can think straight, right? Am I preaching to the choir? Yeah, this is true, isn't it? First John is not the type of self-test that you can cram for. It is one that you slowly and methodically answer the questions to and of with honesty. So this morning, we need to make sure that we have a clear head and our emotions are in check because when we begin thinking with our emotions, solid truths that are right before us can become murky and lead us to despair when that truth should be nothing short of a glorious, warming comforting light for our path all right so we were going to clear our minds clear those emotions check them at the door we're going to go to the text the text this morning and take our test would you open your bibles if you have them with you to first john chapter one first john chapter one and we will be in verses eight through chapter two verse two first john one eight through Chapter 2, verse 2. Hear the word of the Lord. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thus says the living word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that the same Holy Spirit that breathed out these scriptures would breathe new life into us that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see, and that it would not fall upon uh, hard soil, but fertile soil. 
God, would you uh, allow me to speak plain and clear? I do understand that being a teacher of your word, there is immense judgment, higher standards, and I accept that. Would your people receive your word this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as we come to verse 8 this morning of 1 John 1, we're confronted with our next portion of the self-quiz, all right? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So we can kind of reformulate that into a, a good question. I'll, I'll have my John Piper hand motions this morning going on for you all, all right? It, it, here's the question. Dear listener, do you claim to have no sin? Do you claim to have no sin? Now, some of you may laugh or chuckle that someone would even affirm, well, yeah, I, th- I think I don't have any sin. You, you might think that's odd, but I want to tell you, be careful with that. See, remember, John is combating false teachers in the early church, and remember also that that false teaching, it's the same false teaching that we all face because it just keeps coming at us, different faces, different names, same false teaching. See, there are many today who would claim to be sinless, yet in an ambiguous fashion because we have a culture that does not believe in sin. I'll say that again. We have a culture that does not believe in sin. In truth, sin has been rebranded in our age of branding and marketing to personal preference that is to be celebrated and forced on others. Furthermore, in truth, the only sin that our society acknowledges anymore is the sin of not celebrating the total individualism of others and, Lalo, can you confirm this for me, being white, right? Say that because he's my brother, and you see that we have diversity here because that is fake. We're all of one family. There's a sin of just being white. Everybody in here except Lou and Sebastian and Lalo are sinners in our society. You hear that from the media, don't you? You hear that described to you. It's shameful. You see, if you ask the average Joe on the street, are you sinful? He'll probably look at you in bewilderment because this word sin has been erased from our modern lexicon kind of like the firemen of Fahrenheit 451 coming in and just blazing up all the books and all the words, or the editors of 1984 making new speech and controlling what we say. See, if, if the question to Joe Average is, is rephrased and dumbed down a little to, are you a bad person? That response is almost assuredly 99.9999 in, infinite, on into infinity. What? No. No. Why is that? Why is that? See, if we did a survey of everyone at Kroger on a single Saturday, I would venture to say that over 80%, maybe over 90% of the people would say, no, I'm not a bad person, if they were asked if they thought they were. Why is that? The answer is not only the cultural conditioning that I spoke about in the first sermon of this series, but is also because of two other factors the laxity of the church to fight against sin, which then gave way to how we compare ourselves, our standard. In the past century, the church, by and large, stopped preaching and teaching the graciousness 
of God's standards in his law and his word and what he deems is acceptable and not acceptable, light and dark, sin, righteous, stopped doing that. See, this is no more apparent than a seeker-sensitive movement that wants to give you a personal experience with light shows and fog machines and all of these things, which sounds a whole lot like what the culture is telling us to accept about one another, just your own personal little experience. Exposition, going through the Bible systematically, through books, through each verse, turned into topical sermons that had nothing to do at all with the Bible. Whole Sundays were devoted to what? The shack. Ugh. Or this was one I saw actually on social media the past week. They watched The Chosen instead of have church together. Shameful. Shameful. See, all of these topical sermons have a little Bible verse sprinkled on it, but it's nothing more than self-help. And self-help does not want you to realize that you are a wretched sinner in need of God's grace and redemption. Self-help right there in its own name, wants you to be God and fix yourself up. No need for any power outside of yourself. And self-help will never tell you the truth that you can't fix yourself. That's why it's one of the highest grossing books and movements in the economy. Sin is no longer something, a part of your nature that you must fight against by the power of God. No, no, it's, it's, a, it's a sickness. It's a boo-boo. It's a trauma that you can heal for the right price. Sin is downgraded to a psychological disorder that can be treated with medication for a price. Since the church has by and large stopped preaching against sin and defining what is sinful by the standard of God's scripture, they have made disciples who go out into the world commissioned to be spineless and after a few generations... You can't tell the so-called Christians apart from the very rank pagans. So if sin is no longer death and curse, but a simple sickness, then the standards we compare ourselves with and to, they also change. Right? Here, here's what I mean by that. We no longer say, yes, I am sinful, I am not perfect, and I know I have not kept God's law. That's what used to be said probably about two generations ago. Now we say, well, I'm not Hitler. Right? I'm not Hitler. Again, if, if sin is now just a sickness, Hitler is stage four pancreatic cancer, and everybody else has a cold with every, some people having worse coughs than others, right? That's what we do. We no longer compare ourselves to the positive standard of what we are striving to be, but to the negative, and we're thankful that we're not that negative. A world full of self-righteous Pharisees who are thankful they are not the tax-collecting Nazi. Right? That's what we do now. But dear listener, God makes it very clear. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of of God. All, pas, panton, whatever it is in the Greek, you know what it means? All means all. All have sinned. Are you a part of the all? Yes, you are. 
For we all come from one man, Adam, who sinned and caused all of his progeny, all of his offspring, to fall in him and with him. We cannot purify ourselves. It is like a leopard trying to be a lion, changing spots. You cannot. For us to claim to walk in the truth in the light of the scriptures and in fellowship with God and his church, and then claim to be sinless would be to deceive ourselves rather than the truth being in us. To do so... Uh, to do this is also to deceive ourselves in pride, not just to deceive ourselves like we're, we're, we're dumb and, and deaf and blind, but it is pure pride, not realizing we are children of Satan rather than children of God, with Satan being the great deceiver, the pride master himself. We must be aware that all have sinned, you, me, your neighbor. We cannot claim to be sinless because the scriptures tell us that we are sinful. Not only did the scriptures teach us that all have sinned, but Paul goes on in Romans chapter 7 to speak of how even the blood-bought saints will struggle with sin until he stands in glory. See, Romans 7 displays Paul describing how the true Christian wrestles with sin like Jacob on the river Jabbok with the Lord before him, looking to the standard of God's word and having the clarity to see that they often do what they do not want to do and they often do not do what they want to do. Paul says, wretched man that I am in that, Romans 7. See, this is the blessed wrestling of sanctification, of growing in holiness, of hating sin, the righteous working out of salvation with fear and trembling, the, the making known your calling and election as we talked about in Second Peter in our call to worship. Yes, you see, if you claim to have no sin in the present, you will also claim to have never sinned in the past. See, this is what the text is telling us this morning in verse 8 and verse 10 of 1 John 1. It's even implied in the grammar of the text. In verse 8, if we say we have no sin, that little clause, our verb is in that clause, have, right? If we have not, have not sinned, echo in the Greek. Uh, this is going to be kind of, oh gosh, uh, this is too much for me to handle. I promise it makes sense. It's in the Present active indicative. All right, here's what that means grammatically. It's describing a state of action in the here and now that is being done. Right now. Right now, ongoing. Right? If you say you have no sin, right now, ongoing. Verse 10 is the opposite. Our, verse, our, our verb there in that clause, sinned, hamartano, which is perfect active indicative. The perfect tense in the Greek is something that has happened in the past, that is completed, and the effects are extending into the future. If you say you have not sinned, something in the past. See, we see this in the text. These two thoughts go hand in hand. To say we have no sin is to also say we have not sinned, and to say we have not sinned is to say we have no sin. And herein lies the paradox. To say either of these is sin, both of them lies, false witness. Notice in verses 8 and 10 of 1 John 1 that they, they create what we call an inclusio, a thought sandwich. 
If we say we have no sin, verse 8, and if we say we have not sinned, here's our bread, right? If we say we have no sin, we lie. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. Here's our sandwich. How do we make God a liar if we say that we have not sinned? Our claims of sinlessness, they boldly state that God's word is false, that what he has said over and over and over and over again ad nauseum in his word is not true. It's actually, well, I have my own truth. His is not true. Oh, but isn't that just Paul? You know, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's just the New Testament. Okay, well, 1 Kings eight forty six. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Psalm fourteen three. They have all turned aside; together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Isaiah sixty four six. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all uh, we all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. That's just three, and there are hundreds. If we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar, and his word, his truth, his light is not in us, no matter how sincere we are, no matter how smiley we are about it. I often ask people, and certainly fellow Christians, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? Uh, Unless today's the first time I've met you, and some are, uh, you've heard me ask you probably, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? That's a pastoral question of what are you struggling with? Is there a sin in your life that you're struggling with? Have you been sinned against? Is there something going on? Is there a, a situation? Is there anxiety? Is there a circumstance? What can I pray for you about? And you know what shocks me? more often than not, is the response that I get is this. I'm not saying any of this is you all. <laughs> I'm good. I don't need anything. You know, you don't have to pray for me. I, everything's fine. I'm good. Now, some of that may just be people being hard-headed, thinking that if they let some things out of the bag, then it's like Pandora's box, and, <gasps> you know, there's just so much that they can't put back in. But others, they genuinely think, no, you don't need to pray for me. Everything is fine. Do you realize that for those who really believe everything is fine, this is the equivalent of saying, thank you for asking, but I'm sinless. I don't need you to pray for me about anything. You see, these false teachers here in John that he's combating and that we must combat, we're teaching that you can make a profession of faith and then continue in sin back in verses 5 through 7. You just pray that prayer, fill out that card, We'll put you on the registry and on the roll. It doesn't matter what you do. We don't have to see you for the next 50 years. You're in. You've got your $200 and you can pass go. Right? They also claimed man was not sinful, that he was good at the core. That's what verse 8 is combating. And in verse 10, if somebody was just really gung-ho caught up on like, yeah, but I've done some bad stuff. It just There's some, some stuff, some junk in the past. Okay, well, well if you... You have sinned, then if you come to the true light, if you listen to our secret teaching, you stop sinning and you're instantly perfect. We know that's not true according to God's word. So I ask you again, here's your self-test. Are you a sinner 
do you know that you are a sinner? You must answer yes based upon verses 8 and verses 10 of 1 John chapter 1 this morning. You cannot answer any other way. However, we are not left in a state of sin and misery in our text this morning where everything's dark and gloomy like it feels to be outside. No, the next question in 1 John comes in the middle of that sin sandwich of verses 8 and 10. And this question is a shorthand form of the glorious gospel of salvation in Christ Jesus. Do you understand that you are a sinner? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. Uh, uh, but what am I to do? That's the right response. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This verse right here could be preached for a year, every single service, two hours of service, and never be fully comprehended. When we come to the realization, by God's grace, nonetheless, that we are sinners, John tells us that this is where the truth lies. It's another paradox. Light comes out of darkness. If we say that we are sinners, darkness then is where the light shines from. If we say we are liars, right? If we say we are liars, if we sin, that we have sinned, that is actually where the truth is found. If we confess our sins, he that is God in verse 9. He is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's your rephrased question. Have you confessed and do you continue to confess your sins to God, knowing with confidence that he will faithfully forgive you and cleanse you? Have you confessed and do you continue to confess your sins to God, knowing with confidence that he will faithfully forgive you and cleanse you? Beloved, hear me. This verse right here in my book is the single most encouraging verse, uh, most assuring verse of salvation in, and forgiveness in all of the scriptures in my book. You may have one that you like better, but this one right here gives me so much joy and so much confidence in that I stand before the Lord redeemed. Right here, in the middle of this sin sandwich of verses 8 and 10 is the meat of the gospel which revolves around sin. For the gospel of Christ is that Christ came to save sinners and restore them to fellowship with God by paying the debt of their sin against the wrath of God and to cleanse them. It's a twofold action. Right? Verse 9 calls all and all means all there as well. The all that are sinners have fallen short of the glory, it's the same ones. All to repent, and not only one time, but continually. To confess our sins and seek to flee them, to be cleansed of them every single day. Martin Luther said this one time, and he's right. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, and we heard that this morning in Mark 1.15, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. When Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Luther is right, and it's not because he formulated this, chat, this thought on his own. In verse 9 here, the verb confess 
It's in the present active. And guess what that means? It's ongoing. It never stops. It's each and every day. It's not in the past tense of, well, I confessed my sins at youth group one time years ago when the lights were turned down and this guy that was on stage was telling this story about this girl that got killed in a car crash and it really teared me up and I didn't know what to do, so I prayed a prayer. <gasps> okay, and have you done any confessing and repenting of sins since then? Because the text here calls us in the present actively, continually, with no signs of stopping to confess our sins unto God. The text is calling us to know we are sinners, past, present, future, that we have fallen short of God's glory in total, that we deserve the wrath of God, that we deserve death. What despair, what misery, what blackness, which cast out into the gloominess with gnashing and weeping, Yes, what despair if we are left there and continually told to wallow about in the mire like the prodigal son in misery. But that's not all the verse says. That's not all it says. When we confess, we can be confidently assured with bold, fellowshipping joy that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This right here is the gospel. This right here is the joyful good news. When we confess our sins, repenting and turning away from them, walking not in darkness, but into his glorious light, the light of Christ, God is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us. No one seems to be excited about the gospel anymore. Are we so numb to how wretched our situation has been that we no longer marvel at the gospel? Oh, I pray that he would soften our hearts. Notice in verse 9 that sin is likened to two concepts, and God is described in two ways, meaning each concept of sin and description of God go together. It's this bonding of sin and God that lies at the heart of the gospel. The first one is this, sin is portrayed as a debt, something that we must be forgiven of, pardoned of. Sin is shown to be something that we owe. Secondly, sin is simultaneously shown to be something we need to be cleansed of, cleansed from, a stain, a blemish, a blemish, dirt, junk, whatever it is. The blemish is unrighteousness or the opposite of God. It is darkness instead of light bitter instead of sweet. God here is shown to be the one who does the forgiving and the cleansing. Acting on both of those concepts, God forgives and God cleanses. Notice this. He, he calls us to confess our sins to him. Okay, all right. Lord, forgive me for my sins. Now, now what do I need to do? Then he, look in your text, he is the one who is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. He is. Do you, do you see both God and man being restored in this very verse? You have to because it's, it's staring you in the face. When he causes us to see his light, when we come to God hating our sin, desiring to walk in the light, confessing our sinlessness, our sinfulness rather, God is faithful to forgive us of our sins. 
He is steadfast. He is the one that does it. He, show me where we do anything there. We come confessing, and then what is the rest of it? It's all of God. God is the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God who forgets not his promises. Ask Abraham, ask Isaac, ask Jacob, because he is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Ask Moses, ask David, ask Elijah, ask the prophets, ask Christ himself, who every promise of God finds itself yes in. Ask them all at the scriptures. Ask them at the scriptures, for they speak for you to listen to. He is the one that is faithful to forgive our sins, even when we so sinfully do not believe that he does. I want every single person in this room to listen to me right now. If you've got kids that are being rowdy, stand up with them in the back. I don't care. Go over here in this other room. It's cracked. You can still hear me. Whatever you need to do to be able to hear this, do not get up and go to the bathroom. I will need every single person in here to hear me say this this morning, okay? especially, especially you all who have been wrongly taught what salvation is or who have been manipulated into an incorrect understanding of how we confess our sins and walk before the Lord. In verse 9 of our text this morning, it's another if-then clause. Notice still what it says. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just. I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with genuine people who I believe are truly in fellowship with God, who are going through a hard time, who love the Lord, and they say this right here. It's something to this effect. I don't feel like I'm saved. I don't feel good enough. I don't, I don't feel like... I, I feel like, I feel, I feel, I feel it. And it's just a continual, I, I feel like God doesn't love me. I feel like I'm lost. These people, and you may be one, are in a constant state of despair because they have never truly taken the time to ponder 1 John 1, 9. Beloved, each of you listening to me, can you show me here in verse 9 where John says he is concerned about how you feel? Any Greek grammarians here this morning? Show me the text. We can read it together. Does it say anything about John saying, now lay down on my couch and tell me how you feel? Can you show me where he says, you have to, if you confess your sins to God and feel like you're saved, then he has cleansed you. What exactly is feeling saved supposed to feel like? Again, here creeps in the psychological individualism of the world. Is, is it a high is it excitement all the time? Is it like the weirdo guy that you know you've met at Walmart or Ollie's over in the Christian inspiration section? Like, how are you? Blessed, Lord loves you, God, I'm saved, right? Is that what the feeling is? Is it like butterflies all the time? What is it? This, this appeal to emotion that we so get ourselves rooted in of you not feeling like you're saved, however sincere you believe it is, you know what that is? That is the oldest 
play in the playbook of Satan. Go to Genesis chapter 3 if you don't believe me. You can flip there now or read it tonight. In Eden, God had given Adam and Eve all of the garden to eat except one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it is at this tree that Satan tempts man. And what was his temptation based in? It was actually based in emotion. Why? Because emotions are fickle. They flip and they flop and they're easily manipulated. Did God really say? Right, this is an attack on the truth of God causing a conflict within Eve. She, she second guesses and becomes emotionally unstable. I, uh, yeah, and we can't even touch it. Uh, well, you won't surely die. Now it's an attack to bring stability, a foreign stability through emotional manipulation. Right? Here, Eve, I have the truth. It's not just knowledge, it's feeling. You won't surely die. He's lied to you. Don't you feel that to be true? How does it make you feel that he's lied to you? Oh, no, 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 no. For when you eat of it, ye shall be as gods. Further pressing on the wound of resentment. Satan began attacking the truth of God in the garden through emotion because emotions can so often override true knowledge. Alistair Begg, a, a great pastor up in Ohio, famously had a little rant some years ago blasting the modern worship music scene. And he has this viral clip. You may have seen it. it he has this Scottish accent. And he says, don't tell me what you feel. Tell me what you know. Like that. He's really into it. That's exactly what the text is telling us this morning. Look at the glorious gospel of salvation right before your eyes. God is faithful to forgive us if we understand that we simply are to confess our sins to him and trust that he does what he says he does and is who he says that he is. We don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops, do a bunch of good works, speak a certain way, do anything except admit and confess our sins before him, and then he faithfully does all the rest. You don't do a daggone thing with your salvation except bring the sin unto God, the forgiver, that makes it necessary. That's all you bring is dirt. Why do we not get excited about this anymore? Why do we not care about the gospel? If this message right here, and I'm not saying because of me, if this verse, this message was preached in the 1800s, there'd be revival broke out and there'd be 1,500 people riding on horseback to just come hear the word of the Lord preached about the gospel. Are we that numb to darkness? Are we that much a partaker in it? I pray it is not your case, dear beloved. Please, it must not be. He is faithful and just to forgive us. He doesn't care about how you feel. He wants you to know his word. Know this. That's what the text says. Know this. Know this. God is faithful to forgive us, even when we are faithless and broken. He is compassionate and merciful. He, in Christ, has shared in our sufferings in every way. This is pure Christian joy. This is the fellowship of God and man being facilitated by God himself. It is God pursuing you, you naked and ashamed sinner in the bushes, to clothe you with the skin of his own son. You've got to own this verse. You want a life verse? Forget all the, I know the plans I have for you. Take this one. Take this one. Confess your sins unto God each day with confidence that he is 
faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you and to make you righteous. How does he do that? How does he do that? Does he just toss them aside? You've broken my law. No big deal. Parents, imagine something happened to your children and you stood before the judge and he said, eh, it's fine. Indignation. He, he forgives us and he cleanses us. See, the debt of our sin is laid upon one who pays the price of death in our place. Forgives and cleanses. Two special verbs. They're snapshots. It's not he he will forgive you. He could. He might. Like, I'm not sure. He might cleanse me. He could. I don't know if he's powerful enough. Says that he does. And it's not just a 24-hour deal. It is continual. Each waking moment, he is bringing us into his eternal forgiveness, his eternal cleansing. This is a great and powerful, glorious gospel in Christ. Amen. Everybody, yes. Amen. Woo! All right. All right. Praise God. I'm free in Christ, so that means I can do whatever I want. Hold on. Own the verse. Own the verse. But just because we know that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness does not give us a license to sin. Well, I know he'll forgive me, so I'll just pop onto this website and look at stuff I shouldn't. I'll be somewhere I'm not supposed to be. Doesn't matter, he'll forgive me. No, it's actually quite the opposite. John wants us to make sure we don't overcorrect into this ditch from being fickle with our emotions to being overconfident. 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Part of John's purpose in writing this letter is so that you may not sin, that you, like teachable little children, may not walk in darkness. I, I see some people are, are kind of frazzled. We've got some, some kids crying. You know what? We're teaching them. Teach them. Discipline them. Teach them not to cry. Teach them to listen. Because that's what God is teaching us in his word, because we are little children. If, if you make one of these little ones fall and stumble, who are arms wide open to receive the kingdom, it's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and they throw you in cave run. These are blessings. And you, as a little child of God, see yourself as that, crying out, being unruly in some ways. It's not saying anything about parenting. That's saying, this is you. You don't realize that you're crying out in need of spiritual nourishment. And what does God say? My little children, my little children, I'm writing you these things that you may not sin, but if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Don't treat forgiveness like it's a rental car, abusing it to death. Paul says in Romans 6, 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? John wants us to keep knowing that this fellowship with God, walking in the light, is not an intentional step into darkness and wondering about being like, I know the light's over there, I'll come back later. 
No, John wants us to know this. When we sin, when we mess up unintentionally or intentionally, and then we are convicted to the core of our wrongdoing, which is correct emotion given by the Holy Spirit, we have an advocate, someone who comes alongside us, someone who helps us, someone who pleads our case and our cause. The word advocate here, it connotes someone that's a helper, a lawyer, a friend in a time of need who is able to assist. And can I tell you something? You, dearly beloved, have two advocates. Christ who reigns in heaven and the Holy Spirit who reigns in your heart. For Christ said in John 14 that he would send another helper, one just like him, to be with us forever. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of, guess what? Truth. Truth. You have double aid in your time of need. Remember, a lawyer, an advocate in a trial says, don't say anything. Let me do all the talk and trust my counsel. Trust me. Oh, that we would listen to Christ and trust him as we listen to the Spirit who breathed out the very scriptures that we see as his true word. Trust in the righteousness of God who is the righteousness of you, unrighteous man. Notice the contrast. Cleansed from all righteousness in verse 9. How through Christ, our advocate, our helper, our righteousness but what does christ help us with how does he advocate for our cleansing ah again another glorious thread of the gospel christ is the faithfulness and justice of god verse 2 of chapter 2 he is the propitiation for our sins and not only ours but also but also for the sins of the whole world the righteous jesus our advocate our lawyer our person of help he is the propitiation for our sin for all of sin and what does propitiation mean it means the payment and cleansing of verse 9 he is the sacrifice the one who has died in your place and bore the wrath of god against sin for you your sin dearly beloved dear believer Christ is your righteousness. He is in perfect fellowship with the Father, and it is this Jesus who is both your advocate and your atoning sacrifice. What does he advocate for? What is he saying? What he has done on your behalf. It's not what the potential that you have. Well, he's a good person. He's our, it's what Christ has done for you. He declares about you with joy. This one, he's in fellowship with me. This one right here, she's in fellowship with me. I have taken away their sin. I have bleached them white as snow. I am their faithfulness. I am their justice. I love them. Is this not the pure essence of joyful love? The appeasement of the wrath of God against sin, sin and rebellion against him which we have all committed and it's done by God himself. He's the one that cleanses us. He's the one that forgives us. He's the one that gives us our righteousness. It's not in us. This is joy. This is fellowship. This isn't Jesus pleading with an angry father like, Daddy, please don't beat him. Please don't throw him into hell. No, this is God's love and glory on display that he would even dare reconcile you and yet in reconciling you bring you back to the garden by himself in himself. It's not yours. What love is this? It is a paradox again. Eternal life through the death of Christ in your place. John Calvin, great reformer, said this, the advocacy of Christ is the continual application of his death to our salvation. And so it is. It is. Continual, eternal confession and sanctification all going together. 
As I close, I don't have three points of application for you today because this text is nothing but application. I would have to re-preach it, so I'm just going to ask some questions for you to ponder. Do you know that you have sinned and that you will continue to struggle with sin? Do you know that you are called to confess your sins to God each day desiring to turn from them from darkness to light? Do you know that God is faithful and just to forgive you of those sins and cleanse you? If you know this, do you understand that that doesn't give you a license to sin since you know he will just forgive you anyway? Do you know that when you mess up and sin, you have an eternal advocate who has paid your debt and cleansed you? Do you know you cannot save yourself and restore yourself to fellowship with God? Don't tell me what you feel. Tell me what you know based on the scriptures. If this is the first time you've ever come to this realization, do not be in despair. Be joyful that God, who is light, has lit up your darkness. Weep over your sin, but let your, your weeping be bitter sweetness, bitter that you've sinned against such a holy and loving God, and sweet that he would give you such grace. Confess, repent, walk, and know. If this is you today, do not leave this building without letting somebody know. Come talk to me about this, but let us all know this that we are sinners, that God has forgiven us in Christ and cleansed us, and he does this each day for his mercy is new every morning. The sacrifice and cleansing of God, of Christ, is once for all, but he applies it to us continually. This is fellowship, and when our emotions are fickle and they flip and they flop, when the enemy or a specific sin we struggle with gets us down, we stand on the solid rock of Christ who calls us to know these truths in his word, and it is this. He is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us, to accept us, to cause us to have and bring us into closer fellowship with him, to have us walk in the light as he is in the light. Hide not this light under a bushel. Let it be like a city shining on a hill. Amen. Amen. I leave you with 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. The saying is trustworthy. This is a true statement from the spirit of truth. This is is for you. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Know that. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Know that. If we deny him, he will deny us. Know that. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Be of joy. Be of confession. Be of repentance. And know what he has done for you. And stand in that. Amen? Grace and peace to you. Let's pray.